Uh, okay, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you, and it's good to look into God's Word uh, together this morning. We've almost finished our Acts series now. This is the second to last lesson. Uh, it's entitled Paul's Journey to Rome, and uh, that, that uh, it, it's on a certain level, that's a very humdrum lesson title, uh, but it actually, it says it all. It, that's, that's precisely what's going on in chapter 27. Paul is sailing to Rome to stand trial before Caesar, before Nero. But this, this little story takes place under an overarching big story. So we need to place it in its broader context if we're going to understand it. So look at the top of your handout. We read that Luke's primary purpose in the book of Acts is to edify Christians by recounting how God's plan, coming to fulfillment in Jesus, continues to unfold in the history of the early church. And this is how. Christ continues to act and to teach into his kingdom, his kingdom to advance to the ends of the, of the earth through the witness of his apostles, empowered through the promised Holy Spirit. And if we keep that as our interpretive pole star, we'll never go too far wrong when we're reading the book of Acts. Unfortunately, many Christians don't. Uh, the continuing story of God's saving purposes through the risen Lord Jesus is not their pole star. And instead, they use this book as a sort of proof quarry text for a whole cluster of church issues and debates. So congregational versus Presbyterian church government, speaking in tongues as a sign of receiving the Holy Spirit, the responsibilities of deacons, infant household baptism versus believer baptism, mission strategies, evangelistic strategies, the role of miraculous gifts of the spirit in church life today. And certainly Luke, uh, all those matters Luke writes about, and I've preached on all of them, uh, but we make a serious mistake if we think that those are the issues that, that Luke primarily has in mind. Luke's primary purpose is to edify the new covenant people of God. His primary purpose is to assure Christians by recounting how God's salvation plan is continuing to unfold. He wants his readers, he wants us, New City, to understand it didn't all stop with the last chapter of his gospel, with Jesus ascending to heaven. God's purposes and salvation are not exhaustively fulfilled with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his glorious exaltation. The story of salvation is moving from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, to what the kingdom of God looks like now. Now that Jesus has come, died, risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And Luke wants our full belief, all right? He wants us, along with his patron, Theophilus, to know the certainty of the things that uh, we've been taught. Luke chapter 1, verse 4, the certainty of those things. So don't let anything you see out there in the wicked world convince you otherwise, all right? The resurrected Jesus reigns. Jesus' kingdom indeed has been inaugurated, and all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith will receive the promised blessings of forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit. It's as Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So be assured, Luke is telling us, be encouraged, know beyond a certainty. The, world, the word of the gospel is going to continue to spread even in the midst of satanic opposition. 
even in the midst of COVID, even in Venezuela, even in Ontario, wherever, at the local churches, they're going to be established and they will be strengthened with the, with the apostolic message of the Lord Jesus. And our account today of Paul's shipwreck on the way to Rome to stand trial before Caesar is part of that bigger, glorious story. So look at your big picture in your handout. Luke includes this lengthy narrative to teach something further about divine providence and Paul's role within God's plan for the nations. After several chapters of recounting accusations, trials, and imprisonments, Luke demonstrates God's special care for Paul and all who travel with him. Once again, Paul's calling to be a servant and a witness of the risen Lord Jesus is confirmed. We read this in chapter 26, 16 to 18. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So do you see how it all hangs together? I, I'm going into all this background because we don't want to see this shipwreck story as just sort of a, a dramatic tangent on Luke's part. Now, you'll recall that in chapter 26, uh, Paul has he just completed his fifth uh, of his five trials. This last one is before Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa. Now the apostle begins his journey to Rome to testify about Jesus before Nero, just as Jesus said he would in chapter 23, verse 11. But God has plans for his apostle during his sea voyage to the capital. It's plans of providence, we might call them. And uh, Luke goes into great detail. In fact, this is interesting. This is the most detailed record in all classical literature about the working of an ancient ship. I mean, atheistic scholars come to this text over and over when they want to learn about mariner life back in, back in the day, right? This is the nautical text. Of classic literature. So let's let's dive right in. Chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. And then, although Lo, uh, Luke doesn't mention this explicitly, specifically, it's assumed that they set sail from Caesarea. That's where Paul had been held in captivity for the last two years. And just like Claudius Lysias in Acts chapter 21 to 23, Julius is introduced as a named Roman official. Uh, he's a centurion of the Imperial Regiment. Uh, he's the man in charge of the prisoners. And we'll see throughout the story that he really respects Paul. He likes him. And Paul is in the company of some other prisoners, Luke writes. In all probability, these are men condemned to death. And now they're on their way to Rome to die in the arena. Can you imagine like, what a brutal time to be alive? Uh, but as it turns out, or rather in God's providence, no ship is available to transport the prisoners directly to Italy, which is why the voyage from Caesarea to Malta takes place in two stages. There are two ships in this account. One ship is from Adramidium in verse 2, and the other is from Alexandria in verse 6. So look at verse 2. We boarded a, sh we boarded a ship from Adramidium. And if you look at your map, Adramidium is situated on the northeast shore of the Aegean Sea, not far uh, south of Troas. And just, just a word to the wise, 
for today. Um, keep your map handy, just ready to consult at a moment's notice. We're going to get a, a fire hose of medita Mediterranean geography here today. So, uh, and, and since there were no dedicated passenger vessels at that time, there's no Carnival Cruise Lines or anything like that, the Centurion, he appears to requisition a trading boat for transport of his soldiers and prisoners. And, and this first ship that he requisitions, this is a coastal vessel. It wasn't designed to sail on the high seas, and it was apparently, it was working its way home along the southern and western coasts of Asia Minor. So verse two, we boarded a ship from Adamidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And it would be very easy to pass over this man, Aristarchus, in silence, but I think that would be a big mistake. I want to zoom in on him for a moment. Do you recognize his name? Aristarchus played a role in the later stages of Paul's ministry. Uh, he's first mentioned as a traveling companion of Paul's during the, uh, the Apostles' Ephesian ministry, and he was exposed to personal danger in, in the riot that occurred in Ephesus in the theater. And, and now he's accompanying Paul on his prison voyage to Rome, enduring all the same hardships. And then he remains with Paul throughout his Roman imprisonment. Which is why the apostle writes in Colossians 4.10, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. So notice there, Paul doesn't call Aristarchus a dear brother or a fellow worker. He calls him a fellow prisoner. Uh, this man volunteered to share the apostle's imprisonment in order to be of help. And, and though Luke just mentions his name in passing in verse 2, this man's example demonstrates that God uses the selfless for the advance of his kingdom. He uses the selfless. Uh, Aristarchus is a man who puts others ahead of himself. Uh, that's the posture of his heart. You can see he is selfless with his time, his property, his money, his commitments. Uh, here's a man who's prepared to pull up stakes, leave his home in Thessalonica and follow Paul halfway around the world, enduring riots and shipwrecks and prison so that God's apostles of the Gentiles can be assisted in any way that he can. Aristarchus is a man who is utterly committed to the, the advance of Christ's kingdom. So it appears we have three Christians on board this vessel. We have the Apostle Paul himself. We have Dr. Luke, uh, the writer of one quarter of the New Testament. And this selfless brother, Aristarchus. Verse 3. The next day, we landed at Sidon and Julius, the centurion, in kindness to Paul allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. And no doubt a soldier uh, accompanied Paul on this trip to shore, but, but Julian even permitting this visit indicates his trust of him. He, he doesn't see Paul as being a security risk. Putting into port at Sidon, uh, that's a trading stop for this vessel, but uh, for Paul, it's a very valuable opportunity for a few hours fellowship with Christian friends. And Paul's Roman citizenship meant that he was eligible uh, for a daily food allowance. But he's able to depend on his friends and fellow believers to supply this food for him. 
So verse four, from there, we put out the sea again and passed the lee or under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And in preparing this lesson, uh, there was all sorts of sailing jargon I had to bone up on. <clears throat> under the lee refers to sailing under shelter. So the ship was protected by the island from the contrary wind. So the wind's blowing this way, here's the island, and then the ship is over on this side. It's protected by the island. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia, where Paul's hometown of Tarsus was situated, and Pamphylia, uh, where he had landed on the first missionary journey, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And as you can see on your map, uh, Myra is in the southernmost part of Asia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So here we have that ship swap. They're, they're no longer traveling on a coastal vessel. Now they're aboard a proper seagoing vessel. And, and although this ship is privately owned, it operated under state control when it was contracted to bring grain to Rome. And as we see in verse 38, the ship is carrying a cargo of grain. So Julius, the centurion, with the powers vested in him as a centurion, he requisitions the ship. Pay attention now to the difficulty, the danger, as Luke describes the second part of the voyage. Verse 7, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. And Nidus is located at the southwest tip of Asia Minor. When the wind did not allow us to follow our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmoni. And that's the cape at the northeastern end of the island of Crete. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> so if you're, if you're following along on your map, what's happening in verse 7 is that they're sailing between the mainland and the island of Rhodes. Rhodes is that bigger island in the southern Aegean uh, to the southeast of Nidus, but they're moving slowly because of contrary wind. Verse 7, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. But there, off Nidus, instead of continuing west, as you can see, across the lower end of the Aegean Sea, that's where they want to go, the wind forces them uh, almost due south towards Crete. You can see that, that blue sailing arrow of Paul's just going straight south at this point. Uh, 7b, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So all these adverse weather conditions have caused a very serious delay in this journey. Already the Day of Atonement has passed and that's on a lunar calendar. So we know that this would have been in 59 AD. It's October the 5th. It was past that, uh, which means they had entered the dangerous season for sailing which always had to cease uh, by the beginning of November. That was just proverbial. So it was clear to everybody that they couldn't complete their voyage to Italy. Uh, they were too far away. There wasn't enough time. The conditions were already terrible. I mean, they, they barely got to where they are right now. They're gonna have to winter somewhere. The only question was, should they lay up in Fair Havens where they are right now or seek a better harbor farther west along the coast of Crete. Uh, and at this point, 
Paul, who's had a lot of experience in the Mediterranean Sea, he warns the ship's company. Verse 10, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. So <clears throat> the apostle's advice is to stay put, lay up in fair havens uh, for the winter. Don't sail another inch. And, and Paul's not prophesying here. Uh, this is the wisdom of an old sea salt. All right. Paul had traveled over 3,500 miles by sea in the Mediterranean in his missionary career already. And he's been shipwrecked twice before. Verse 11, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. So he may have treated well uh, Paul well previously, but he's not prepared to trust Paul's judgment in this matter. Verse 12, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. You can see that on your map. And now this is where the real trouble begins. Uh, the ship fails to reach Phoenix and it's driven wildly off course. Uh, they should have taken Paul's advice and just stayed there. Verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. And this, this gentle southerly wind, it deceives them into thinking that they can manage the other, the next 40 miles to the harbor at Phoenix. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. And once they were blown out of the lee of Crete, uh, there were no more harbors, only the open sea, and now the vessel is in great danger. This is every sailor's worst nightmare on the open sea in a hurricane. And it, it's fascinating to read the precautionary measures the crew takes in their, in their desperate attempt uh, to save the ship. First, briefly exploiting what little shelter Kauda Island could offer them. They just managed to haul on board their lifeboat, verse 16. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. Uh, so the men hoisted it aboard. The lifeboat was normally, it was, it was towed from the stern, but that could have really damaged the ship. Uh, it could have itself been destroyed by the waves too. So second, they, they frapped the vessel. That means they passed cables under the hull to hold the timbers together. Third, uh, fearing that the Sirtis sandbanks, which although it was far away on the Libyan coast, they were dreaded by all Mediterranean sailors. They lowered the sea anchor to act as a break as they drifted uh, onwards in 17B. Fourth, on the following day, as the uh, relentless battering of the storm continued, they jettisoned some of the cargo, verse 18. Fifth, on the third day of the storm, they threw overboard as many parts of the ship's tackle as could be spared, verse 19. Finally, after 11 more days of this, a raging storm with neither sun nor stars to guide them, and this is days before you had a sextant or a compass, uh, the whole ship's company seems to have given up all hope of being saved. But it was at, in this crisis of despair that Paul steps forward with a word of encouragement. <clears throat> now, so far in the book of Acts, 
Luke has depicted Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, the pioneer of three missionary expeditions, a prisoner, uh, and a, a defendant. Now Luke portrays him in a different light. He's no longer an honored apostle. He's just an ordinary man, uh, a lonely Christian, you know, uh, apart from Luke and Aristarchus. He's just an ordinary man among other men, among nearly 300 non-Christians, right, who are, who are either soldiers or prisoners or perhaps merchants or crew. Yet Paul clearly has God-given leadership gifts. It's quite certain that the Apostle Paul is the most experienced traveler on board this ship. One commentator cataloged the Apostle's 11 voyages on the Mediterranean before he set sail for Rome. And he calculates, I mentioned this before, that it actually he'd already traveled 3,500 miles by sea. Uh, yet it, it's more than just mature sea experience, which makes Paul stand out as a leader on board this ship. It's his steadfast Christian faith and character, too. Paul's already spoken once when he expressed his view about where the ship should winter, uh, but his warning was overridden. Now he speaks again, verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should, not have, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. And I think that verse is often understood. Paul's not chiding these men, he's not saying, I told you so. <laughs> he's, he's trying to get a hearing based on his previous sound advice. Uh, verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And the basis of Paul's promise here is revelation. This isn't just his old sea dog advice. This is like he knows this. Verse 23, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. So it's not the exalted Lord Jesus like it was back in Jerusalem. Now it's an angel of God. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And the language of verse 24, God has graciously given you. That suggests that this granting is a response to prayer. Doesn't it sound like that? Paul's been asking for deliverance on behalf of the, of the whole ship's company. Verse 25, so keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And really, I mean, the rest of the chapter demonstrates the fulfillment of Paul's trust of, of, his, of his prophecy. So we're going to move through this quickly, but just, just look at verse 25 again. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. So in a certain sense, God's reputation is on the line. He said, this is what's going to happen. Let's see if it does. Verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. You can see Luke concludes himself here. He's an eyewitness. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. It could have been by smell. It could have been by hearing crashing of waves. Uh, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and it found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. 
Then Paul said to the centurion and the sailors, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Which means God's promise to give him the lives of the whole ship clearly presupposes that they all stay together. Verse 32. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Together, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So as dawn is about to break, Paul urges everybody to eat because they haven't done so for two weeks, either because of the constant suspense or because of seasickness or because food supplies have been saturated or because it was just impossible to cook during the gale. But now he presses them. You must eat some food. And, and with that, Paul sets them an example. He gives thanks publicly for the food and he begins to eat. And because of the sequence here that Paul took bread, gave thanks, broke it and ate, some Christians think that this is a communion meal, that he's, he's doing the Lord's Supper here. No, 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 no. This is a gathering of unbelieving sailors sailor, uh, and soldiers and prisoners. It's not the gathered church. This, this is just an ordinary meal. And as the results of the meal, uh, the, one of the results is that, verse 36, the men are encouraged. And having eaten as much as they wanted, the rest of the grain cargo, it's jettisoned, that's thrown over the side. This would give the ship a better chance of passing over the shoals without its cargo weighing them down and safely beaching. That is their intent or they want to beach. And, and this may sound like a, a random thing to latch onto at this point, uh, but I really appreciate what John Stott, uh, some of his insights here in his commentary. Uh, he says that all this goes to show that Paul is an integrated Christian. I've been thinking about that term, that phrase the whole, the whole week through. We want to be integrated Christians. So he says this, here then are aspects of Paul's character, which endear him to us as an integrated Christian who combined spirituality with sanity and faith with words. He believed that God uh, would keep his promises and that he had courage to say grace in the presence of the crowd, you know, before these hard-bitten pagan sailors, right? But his trust and godliness did not stop him, seeing either the ship would should uh, not take risks with the onset of winter, or that the sailors must not be allowed to escape, or that the hungry crew and passengers had to eat to survive, or, or later, that he needed to gather wood and, and keep the beach fire burning, right? He was a man of God, of God but he's also a man of action, a man of the spirit, but he's also a man with common sense. And just because he has a word from God doesn't mean, well, let's just kind of sit on our, on our duffs and just it comes as it comes. No, he's a man of action. Uh, he's a man of common sense. So I want to ask Christian, um, do you need to make some tough decisions that will impact your future? Are you in that process right now? Do not look at God's will for your life like one of those magic eight ball toys, you know, where you shake it and it comes up with the message. That's not how it works. When it comes to our future, 
we should take some responsibility, make a decision, and just do something. Um, if, if you want to access wisdom in your decision-making, then read the Bible responsibly. I mean, don't play Russian roulette with it and just put, read it responsibly. Seek wise counsel from others and pray for wisdom. Pray for illumination and what you already know is God's will. Be like Paul. Be a man of God and of action. Be a woman of the spirit and of common sense. I could say a lot more on that important topic. Uh, it was the third lesson, actually, in our ethics, Christian ethics series from September 2019. If you want to go there, you can hear it. But I press on. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. And, and three actions were necessary to achieve this goal. Verse 40, cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. And at the same time, too, they untied the ropes that held the rudders. And three, then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow, the front of the ship, was stuck fast and would not move. And the stern, the back, was broken by, to pieces by the pounding of the surf which now makes it necessary they all need to swim to shore. Verse 42, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping because Roman law said if anyone escaped, the soldiers themselves would be liable to bear the punishment. That's why the Philippian jailer, right? He thinks everyone's escaped, he's going to kill himself. Uh, verse 43, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. A very interesting verse. What, what, what came to me, what kind of was put into my mind when I read that this week was 1 Timothy 3, chapter 7, and the qualifications for an elder. A good reputation with outsiders, right? People liked Paul. Uh, they admired him. He was pleasant to be around, like Jesus. <laughs> prostitutes and religious leaders both enjoyed being in Jesus' presence, right? So, so Christian, if you have a problem lovingly relating to unbelievers created in God's image, uh, or if they have a problem relating to you, or if as a Christian, people have to bear with you and tolerate you, that's a clue that something's wrong. Uh, you, you should seek wise counsel. You should talk to a pastor. The centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely, right? So just as uh, the angel of God said, it all, came, it all came to pass. Chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. It's still called Malta today. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. And, and Luke, actually, he calls these islanders barbarians. <laughs> since, since Greek was not their first language, and they, uh, they were uncultured from a Greco-Roman perspective. So he says, verse 2, the barbarians <laughs> showed us unusual kindness. Not very PC. But anyway, they built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. 
when the Islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> so, you know, you'll recall uh, when Paul and Barnabas were mistaken for gods uh, in Lystra back in chapter 14, they, they reacted negatively, right? They, they tore their clothing and they ran to the, into the crowd and they were shouting. And then they also took an opportunity to preach about their creator God in that moment. And while Luke mentions, makes no mention of any preaching going on here, it would be really inconsistent with the picture he's, he's painted of the Apostle Paul so far to assume that he, he never said anything to honor God the whole three months he's on the island of Malta, right? It's inconceivable. He didn't preach Christ in some way. But Luke, I think, is obviously amused uh, that they should immediately change their minds and call him a god. Uh, so fickle were the pagans in Lystra in chapter 14 that Paul was first worshipped and then stoned. Here on Malta, he's first called a murderer and then a god. <laughs> but the, the truth is at neither extreme, obviously. Instead of being drowned or poisoned, uh, or, or by the goddess Justice, that's what they, the island, islanders call that, uh, Paul had actually been protected from both fates by the Lord Jesus. Verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies we needed. So there we have it. And Lord willing, next week, New City, we'll look at Paul's arrival in Rome and then his witness to the Jews in that city. And with that video lesson, we'll wrap up our series in the Book of Acts. Amen.